Hello, lifters, and welcome back to Raising the Bar. I am here with very special guest, Ashley Contorno. How are you doing? I am great. How are you? How's everybody? Hopefully great. Uh, thank you so much for being on with me. I really appreciate it. Um, you are more commonly known on Instagram as the veggie lifter. Um, yes. And that is something that I definitely want to dive into. I did see that you posted that it was your what 11th anniversary of being a vegan. Is that correct? Yeah. And the 15th of December is 11 years. Wow. So where did all of that start? Like what motivated you to um, become a, a vegan? Excuse me, not a vegetarian. No, I am a vegetarian. Vegetarian. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm, so there's so many different classifications. I'm okay. what's called lacto-ovo, which means I eat lactose products, dairy products, and ovo eggs. Um, I try not to eat dairy too much, but um, eggs are a component of my diet that I eat every day. I tried to go vegan for about a week and it is just not for me. So I, my reason and rationale for becoming a vegetarian was health purposes in the beginning. Both okay. of my parents have cancer. Um, my mom has breast cancer. My dad has testicular and parotid gland cancer. At this time, they are both cancer free. But yeah. back then it was my way of kind of helping my epigenetics. Epigenetics, if you don't know out there listening, is something that's outside of your DNA. And I was a poor grad student. So it wasn't like I wanted to do like all organic and natural and I just couldn't afford it. So I was like, I just won't do it at all. And back then it was actually pretty difficult. There was like local burgers and veggie burgers and like that was it. And now it's like, I can go to a fast food restaurant and get something to eat, which, so it has changed a lot. And, um, it's just, it, the lifestyle is a lot easier than I thought it was going to be going into it after I did just a little bit of research. And as time has gone on, it has just made it that much easier. And my favorite question is, you know, how do you get enough protein? And I just tell I'm like, look at me, do I look like I have a deficiency? Yeah, definitely not lacking. <laughs> So I think it's just a, a common misconception that people think protein, they, they equate protein with meat. And there's a ton of ways that you can get protein and also not just be a carbitarian, which a lot of people who switch to vegan or vegetarian just end up eating carbs. And it, it which takes honestly a, doesn't sound that bad to me. Right? Pizza, <laughs> pasta, but it just takes a little bit of planning, but when you're in a health and fitness industry, you typically pre-plan a little bit anyways. So right. it, that's nothing that's foreign. Yeah. I would say in 11 years, there's been two instances where I've like inconvenienced a group of people by saying, I don't want to only eat nachos. So we're going to go somewhere else to eat. But otherwise it's, it's really not a big deal. Wow. Now, when you started um, the vegetarian lifestyle, were you in the weight room? Were you active? Were you powerlifting like you are now? Or did you have a completely different lifestyle? I know you said that you were in grad school. I was a bodybuilder. Gotcha. Um, so I've been weightlifting. I'm 34. I have been weightlifting for about 17 years. So about half of my life. Yeah. And I was just general fitness, kind of cardio bunny and cycling and then bodybuilding. And at that time I was, we'll call it quasi bodybuilder because I was not that good at it. But um, it, it was a little bit difficult doing bodybuilding and being a vegetarian just because I, I didn't have a coach. I was so new to the sport. I was so green that I was just kind of making it work. But it's still, again, just Pinterest at that time was huge. So I got so many recipes and so many creative ideas on how to think outside of the box that I wouldn't have thought of myself by, you know, going through Pinterest and finding that avenue. 
Sure. Absolutely. It's funny that that uh, evolution within the fitness industry sounds very similar to mine, like started on the younger side, didn't know what the heck I was doing, thought that the treadmill and the elliptical were the only thing that I could do because, you know, girls didn't touch weights um, and then got into cycling. And I don't know if you're talking about indoor cycling or outdoor cycling that you were doing. Outdoor. Outdoor cycling. I was doing the indoor. I actually taught um, indoor cycle for 10 years. Um, oh, cool. Just recently stopped a couple months ago, actually. Um, I got really busy and it just something had to give and that was it. Um, and then, you know, got into powerlifting or I'm sorry, bodybuilding and then decided, you know what? I really like to eat and I'm really strong. So let's just transition over. <laughs> um, but that, that's so interesting because there's not a lot of powerlifters that live the vegetarian lifestyle. Um, and if they do, they're not as um, vocal about it as you are um, and don't necessarily put the education out there like you do. So I do appreciate that you do that. And I know a lot of people who try and follow that lifestyle do as well, because um, it is very difficult to um, not necessarily get the protein in, but just find like well-rounded protein sources that aren't really high in anything else. Yeah, a balance. And I refer people to nutritionists that know more than I do all of the time, specifically people who want to become vegan, because I am not super versed in that world. Um, additionally, you know, if you're climbing a mountain, you do it one step at a time. And right. I feel like when people are transitioning into a different lifestyle, they think that they need to do a 180 and it's just clear the fridge, change. Run. I say, why don't you start with just doing it on Monday? Yeah. And then progress to Monday, Wednesday. And then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and, you know, just slowly build yourself into it to see A, if it's something you want to do and B, if it's sustainable for your lifestyle. Absolutely. Yeah, that is so funny. Like, regardless of whatever, like fitness or health avenue people want to go down, they think they have to, it's, a, it's an all or nothing scenario and that's not the case. And typically the people who are going from zero to 60 and moving so quickly into that, it's not sustainable for them because it is so overwhelming to make all those changes at once. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just, I mean, I went all in just because I made that decision. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll never forget my last meal as a non-vegetarian was calamari. And you know how some of them kind of look like buttholes. Uh -huh. So I was just eating it and I was just like, this is so gross. I can't even do it. And <laughs> then that was just like it for me. That was the last straw. Yep. So I just kind of, you know, cold turkey it. But I think that people who are interested in learning do that learn, dive mm -hmm. in and, and then, you know, slowly go towards a goal or ask other people. I get DMS all the time. I always read them all. I always answer them all. And if I don't have the answers, I refer to other people who know more than I do. Absolutely. And there are so many resources out there for people to educate themselves almost to the point where it's like a little too much because yeah. you find like so much research that, you know, contradicts each other, but both of them are from reputable sources. I'm like, well, you know, people are like, what do you believe? Right. Because there's things that say that, you know, vegetarian veganism, you know, kind of everything within that world is a great and healthy lifestyle. And then there's on the flip side, experts that are saying that it's not right. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of hard for pe people can get the information, but to decipher what's going to be best for them. And uh, to be honest, it doesn't work for everybody. I have right. known people, I have someone who said that she was like severely depressed, not, you know, choosing that lifestyle. And she tried to make it work for like a year. And then when she switched back, she, you know, found a greater success. Whereas I have absolutely no problem. Um, and then there's also misinformation, mm -hmm. not stuff that's not even true or has been proven wrong. And people still perpetuate these old theories, like the soy causes cancer theory. Yeah. Um, 
that has been disproven well over and over again, but there's still lingering, you know, smatterings of it here and there where people still think, oh, well, you shouldn't eat soy. And I'm just like, well, go. But a lot of people don't know where to find solid research. So I I understand. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it is generational too. Like you and I are just about the same age a year apart. And, you know, our parents, right, have a completely different view on what a healthy diet is than we do. Right. And it's just, you know, a generational thing and the information that was available to them at the time. And, you know, even though more information has surfaced and disproven some things or, you know, validated some things too, like still just like stuck in that old, old way of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So you were also a doctor of physical therapy. Yes. Um, Very, very impressive. Um, So what, what made you want to go the physical therapy route? It was funny. My husband and I were just talking about it this morning. Ironically, um, we were making a joke about my mom falling because when she came to visit us in California, she lives in South Carolina. Uh, we went to this haunted house and it was like really dark, but she fell down some stairs because I almost fell getting out of the shower today. He's like, you're turning into your mother. But um, it was her falling that made me want to be a physical therapist. So it was wintertime in Ohio and I was washing some dishes and there was like a, a little picture window right in front of the, um, the sink. And I see this tuft of snow go by and it wasn't snowing but there was snow on the ground. I was like, that was weird. And then I continued to keep washing the dishes and I hear my mom screaming. Oh no. We had in the Midwest, you have like a fridge in the garage. Typically Mm -hmm. it's a real standard thing. So we had like uh, pops and sodas, whatever you want to call them out there. And she was going to get some and she was wearing flip-flops and she fell on the way back. So she fractured her ankle, a trimalleolar fracture, which is a gnarly one where your inside bone, your outside bone and the thing in the middle all break and it requires internal fixation and hardware. And it's a, it's a pretty long recovery process, but I had just gotten my license. I was 16 and it was her driving foot, her right foot. So I took her to her outpatient physical therapy when she was ready. And from that first session on, I was like, this is what I want to do, period. And I almost gave up on that dream because for some reason, physical therapy is a clinical doctorate. Mm -hmm. Um, There's three different types of doctorates. And for some reason, I didn't even know the difference until like a year before I graduated. I just knew I was getting a doctorate because no one in my family has gone to college. So um, it it's so difficult to get in the program. They treat it like a medical doctorate. Like there's 36 spots and you can amplify the app, you know, a thousand times the amount of applicants, you know, versus right. the available spot. So it took me three years to get in with a 3.8 GPA. Wow. And, and that was at Cleveland State University. So it wasn't like it's, a, you know, a super, super competitive school, like some of the things here in California. And on my third rounds of applications, so I was in, I just, I had already got my bachelor's degree. So I was kind of in this limbo postgraduate, just taking classes to try to improve my GPA even more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that costs a lot of money. I was working as a bartender and then the applications are like two or $300 a piece. And I wasn't just applying to Cleveland State, I was applying to other schools. I did get into two schools, one in Missouri and one in Florida. My dad lives in Florida, so I was gonna go move there. And I decided I really didn't wanna have the out-of-state experience based on the amount of financial aid and help I was going to receive from my family because it was kind of all on me. So I decided that staying local was gonna be the best decision. Um, And 
I ended up getting into Cleveland State in that third round. And if I didn't get in that year, I was going to move into a different career path, uh, maybe like a nurse practitioner or something like that. And I'm really grateful that I got in that year and I didn't give up because I don't feel like where I'm at in life right now would have ever happened. It would have never because, uh, you know, fast forward with all the things that happened in my life to meeting my husband, to moving across the country, all of those things happened because I pursued physical therapy and then I became a traveler. So um, I'm just fortunate, you know, when all the stars align, it really works out. Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, I worked for a facility called Empower um, here in Nashville, Tennessee. I worked there for maybe about a year or two. I was um, running their personal training department, um, but they also had sports physical therapy. So they were partnered with um, a practice called Elite Sports Medicine. And um, at the time they were the head physician for that facility was a head physician for the Tennessee Titans. Um, and so we got, you know, a lot of the football players in the off season and whatnot. And I worked very closely with the physical therapist and like watch, I, I would spend just the, any free time that I had in the day, I would spend in the physical therapy clinic, just like watching, listening and learning. And like the amount of knowledge that I gained from that experience, even though it was so short, has helped me tremendously in my coaching career. Um, you know, just listening to how to deal with things like as people are coming off of certain injuries, you know, knee injuries, ankle injuries, whatever. Um, and being able to transition that into personal training at the time and being able to continue that therapy and continue that rehab process after the fact while getting them stronger. And that was such an amazing experience for me. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. I get people that observe me all the time and they're just like the stars in their eyes, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it seems like just commonplace for me, but that's the part that I love is making those connections and those education because in the medical community as PTs, we get to spend a ton of time with our patients or our clients and, you know, doctors, uh, you, you know, you get a fraction of the time. So we really Absolutely. get to learn the, the client or the patient so much more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You definitely do build a bond with them. And, and I noticed that a lot and, you know, I would spend some time with the doctors as well, but they were just like in and out of rooms, literally doing, yeah, and of course they're busy and this is not an doctor doctors whatsoever, but you know, like five minutes with the patient and then they're moving on. Right. And mm -hmm. then the nurse is pretty much doing everything else, but with the physical therapist, they really did get to build that relationship and like see them through the entire recovery process um, versus just like a, you know, a two minute check-in every yeah. week, you know, whatever it was. So yeah. that was such an amazing experience for me. Um, now your practice is out of your gym. Is that correct? Yes. Now it is. Gotcha. And this is the second location for you, South Bay Strains, right? You were, you guys were in a different location prior yeah, we moved. Um, our, we started both with, while working full-time jobs. So my husband is a union plumber. He was working downtown building high rises and I was working in neuro at our local hospital here in town. And we started with a staffless business model. We were like, all right, if this gym fails, we have the sickest private gym ever. It was <laughs> 2000 square feet, uh, 1300 square feet of floor space. And anywhere else in the country besides like New York or here, it would have been very reasonable, but rent is very expensive here. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to start so small because if it failed, we didn't want our lives to be on the line for something that was kind of a passion project at the time. And over the course of our three-year lease, we grew to the point where we were at max capacity and we knew we were going to need to make a huge jump if we wanted to make this our career. Mm -hmm. 
And I had left my job kind of right as we were almost at the end of our three-year lease because the gym was needing more of my attention. And I felt like I couldn't perform the duties of a full-time therapist while managing our business full-time and they didn't have a part-time position. So um, I got a part-time job for like a hot second and I was like, this sucks. And then I just went all in. And um, now we're in an 8,000 square foot facility and I have a 600 square foot clinic inside. Um, I have massage therapists that work with me right now. I'm looking for one. Anyone local needs a spot or a Cairo or another PT. Um, I lose them for different reasons, like PT school or moving or mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, now this is both of our full-time careers. Well, my husband is a, is a professional bodybuilder, so he gets to kind of just do that and uh that's a full-time job all on its own (laughs) it is and he's like we call him the janitor and uh but it it's it's been really cool to transition this into now this is our life that's that's so incredible um I have managed so many different facilities in my time and you know go I've often thought about opening up my own gym but I don't know if that's the direction that I want to go. Um, but it's always been something that's in the back of my mind. Um, but your facility that a couple of weeks ago at the um, PBC finals, that was the first time that I'd been in your gym and I was so impressed with it. Granted, like, you know, everything, all the equipment was like pushed to the side and everything to set up for the meet, obviously, but just like peeking around at the equipment that you have, like you have so many pieces that I wish every gym had. Yeah. It's, it's a very rare eclectic, menagerie of things but that's mostly my husband like he is the savant when it comes to logistical like placement of things Mm -hmm. his spatial awareness and the the necessity of oh we really need this I mean if he could have everything in the world he would but my budget restricts that so (laughs) (laughs) um he but he he just I mean since he's a bodybuilder he gets these really rare you know the only thing I could ever compare to if anyone listening has ever been to Gold's Gym in Venice Mm -hmm. which is you know the mecca for a reason we have as much or more um eclectic niche bodybuilding pieces that they do yeah that's very impressive. Um, and you, you were talking about, you know, spatial awareness and everything when it comes to setting up a gym, like I've done several gym floor plans in my day. And that is one thing that you can tell that people either put a lot of time into planning out or people put no time at all into it. You know, there's, there's some gyms where like you, you know, get rammed in the back by, you know, a barbell or something as you're trying to pull a plate off or, you know, all these crazy things. And like, just having the, the spatial awareness to like, how is the user going to be able to manipulate this machine in the way that they need to without, you know, bruising their knee on whatever is right next to it. And yeah. oftentimes people don't think through that process. And, you know, and I'm sure you're like this too. Like whenever you go into another gym, you start like analyzing everything inside of the building. <laughs> yes. yes. And like, well, could have done this a little bit better or should have put this here, or angled it this way or whatever. Um, well, that's, that's kind of how we did what we did is we took every little piece, all the cookies from the cookie jar, of all the best gyms we've ever been to mm-hmm. and everything we've liked about them. So we have this, you know, big database of stuff we don't like and stuff we do like to kind of make our own. Absolutely. Um, what are the plans for your gym in the future? Like over the next couple of years? We would love to expand but I don't think that's in the cards. There is, so the space for it now is a 15,000 square foot fresh and easy grocery store. 
and we had them subdivide it. So we have 8,000 and then there's 7,000 still next door. Um, but unfortunately with how expensive the rent is, it wouldn't bring in that much money and dollars and revenue by making the gym that much bigger because I would love to have a strong, whole strongman section. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were thinking about putting a strength and conditioning studio in the front, you know, secondary business model. But for right now, honestly, it's like we just made this huge move, but all this equipment, you know, expanded in this big pace. It's just to keep improving our product that we already have, Um, you know, listening to our customers. I think one of the worst things you can do as a business owner is be so married to your own ideas Mm -hmm. that you don't know when it's time to divorce them or guide your business based on your needs and desires when, you know, I'm not the one who's paying the bills here. Everyone that walks through that door is. Exactly. keeping listening to them um keep improving our product line as our merchandise and you know just kind of keep doing what we're doing and keep trying to stay on top yeah well you're doing an excellent job thank you um so shifting back to um kind of the, the pt side of things um you know Powerlifting is becoming extremely popular amongst females, and we've definitely see, seen a huge influx in not only female competitors, but also female coaches, female meet directors, like female leaders within the sport. Um, and one thing that has become something that a lot of people have been talking about is the the issue that women have when they lift as far when it comes to like being able to control their bladder. Um, and there's quite a few like very popular female lifters that are very open about their experience with that. Um, and you know, the, the issue can range from like very serious conditions to very mild situations. Um, so can you kind of touch a little bit about on that as to like why that would happen? Like what causes those issues? Is it something that can be controlled or fixed? Sure. I wrote an article for elite FTS when this issue was kind of like going super viral, there was a, a lifters post who got like 3 million views on TikTok or something like that. And then a lot of replicated videos. Um, And they published it immediately because they were like, oh, it's like a two to three week waiting period. I was like, no, this needs to go now. And they put it through now, which is cool. Um, It was called, can we just let PPB if you want to look it up? Um, So I did do some evidence-based literature research and it is, it's not the best as far as the sub- niche of powerlifting. Um, there's a lot of research on just, you know, postpartum, that bladder control, you know, general fitness population. And I don't really take that because granted, there's a bell curve to everything. There's, you know, elite lifters who are doing three, four, five times body weight lifts. And then there's general fitness population. But I would not compare someone who is just getting into exercise for the first time as someone who is, you know, doing powerlifting movements because the mechanics of the lift are very different. Okay. So there's a few pillars of what I learned that is on the normal side on the, you know, kind of in the middle side. And then on the, this needs attention, but my caveat to, before I explain this is that I don't personally feel like if you're in that, Oh, I feel like this needs attention. That's a guideline because not everybody is in a position financially to get that kind of attention Mm -hmm. or, you know, physically or mentally wanting to put themselves in a room with someone that, you know, is addressing their, you know, private area and the strength of the muscles down there, because not everybody's that open about that. Um, Physical therapy, pelvic floor physical therapy is a subspecialty. So straight out of school, physical therapists are not trained in the field of pelvic floor. That is something that someone would get continuing education and additional certification for. Um, I have gone to physical therapy for my pelvic floor way in the past because I have urge incontinence, meaning 
the minute I know I got to go, I got to go. And yep. I got a little window before I go. So, which is different than stress incontinence. So that is what weightlifting is, stress urinary incontinence. When there's stress placed upon the pelvic floor system, it cannot stand and withhold that stress. So in the literature, what I found is within a normal range is, I believe the number off the top of my head was around 82% um, that females in general, start urinating 80, above 82% of your one rep max. Um, it was slightly different for deadlift. Um, the urination incidence is higher in deadlift than in squat, right. but the pressure in your abdomen is higher in squat than deadlift. That's but, interesting. Yes. The reason for the deadlift happening more is because of um, positioning. Usually people lose position. So there's several reasons that can cause urinary incontinence. One is uncontrollable and it's actually a reflex. Um, when you go sit down there on the toilet, there is a conversation between your brain and your body that says, okay, we are in a place where we can safely release our bowels. Um, if you elicit your urinary reflex, it is a quick flexion movement where almost like if you were to, you know, get the, the hammer on your elbow or the knee and get the reflex in the doctor's office, it's very similar where it releases your bladder without you consciously giving that signal to say, okay, this is happening. And that can happen when you sit down and stand up rapidly as such a squat or deadlift. Um, another can be pressure. So if you lose the intra-abdominal pressure of your bracing, you can, uh, you can be pushing down on your bladder as opposed to filling out, which mm -hmm. can express your bowels. Or also if you have spinal flexion that can increase the pressure downwards. Um, so improper use of belt or brace. Um, fatigue is also another one. Um, as you are doing multiple reps in a set, your detressor muscle, which is a muscle that controls your bladder, also gets weak. I think about it this way. You, I, I would love to meet a person who can bicep curl as much as they can squat. <laughs> It's just and I don't possible. think that person exists, but I would love to meet that person. Yes. Either they have a really big squat or a really great bicep curl, but it, it's a similar situation involving the muscles of your pelvic floor and the muscles of your legs, or comparatively speaking, your entire body performing one movement and then the pressure on your bladder and that whole system. So, you know, people who want to say, oh, you just, you have a weak bladder, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but the strength of that muscle is not equivalent to someone who is, you know, putting 400 pounds on their back as a 185 pound female lifter, right. that it's just not there. So 82% is kind of that average. In my opinion, if you are urinating, if you urinate without a belt and then you put a belt on and you don't, or vice versa, it's usually the inverse where you don't urinate with the belt and you urinate with the belt on. In my mind, that would be you are improperly bracing and you're pushing your pressure down as opposed to out. Mm -hmm. So you're not applying that same bracing mechanics with and without the belt. Um, if you're urinating below 50 or 60%, um, if you start urinating right with the bar, uh, you know, those are indicators of bladder dysfunction. And there's mitigating factors meaning ways to kind of detract from that. One would be getting pelvic floor physical therapy. Another would be wearing a panty liner, a pad or an adult diaper. Again, finances play into that. If you're doing, you know, if you're lifting three days a week and you need to wear a diaper three days a week and the package of them is $16 and not everybody has that kind of financial stability to be able to just purchase that as a luxury. And I don't disagree, you know, getting some sanitizer and cleaning it up after you're done is just as yeah. effective, you know, bringing a change of pants. Um, I think the social stigma is 
heavier than the actual weight of urinating. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of vocal females that are kind of backlashing on that. I have seen women get kicked out of gyms for it. I just think it's completely, absolutely absurd. Even locally in this area, one of our competitors has done the same. Um, on the platform, you know, making that a big deal out of it, just cleaning it up and yeah, moving on, moving on. Mm-hmm. I think is, is the best way to just set that example of this is something that happens. I'm not saying that it's normal and I'm not saying that it's abnormal, but I think that there is a certain subset of the population that should seek assistance when, you know, they are urinating at that 50% and below mark. And then, you know, there is that middle ground where it's like, could this be a problem? Could this not be a problem? Um, and then there's like me, I've been weightlifting for 14 years. It's happened to me twice. I just probably, I think I was just in an improper position. So then there's like the fluke cases. Right. Um, I do want to talk about sex and pelvic floor dysfunction yeah. because there is a correlation there um, with uh, having sex right prior to weightlifting. There is a higher increase incidence of urination. So if that is something you've noticed or something that's going on with you, uh, trying to have sex after your workout or maybe, you know, the day before so that it's not necessarily, if that's something that you're worried about, there is a correlation and connection there. Interesting. And what is that correlation? It's just stretching of the, the pelvic floor, the muscles within there, um, depending on the type of activities that you're participating in, there's a higher incidence of some or other. If, if someone wants to DM me and get very personal about that, um, I, I'm definitely willing to explore and explain a little bit more. Gotcha. Yeah, I think the the social stigma is really the the biggest issue when it comes to this, right? Because like you said, there's there's varying degrees. There's, you know, it it happens once in a while to it happens every single time that you go to lift. And I think what holds a lot of pe- a lot of women back is the social stigma around it. And I've had conversations with many female lifters, especially those who, you know, are either just starting out in powerlifting or really haven't um, you know, been immersed into the, the true community of powerlifting where, you know, generally speaking, no one cares about that, right? Within the powerlifting community, like we know what happens, it's fine. Um, but it it holds them back a lot from really pushing themselves to their full and, you know, true potential because they're embarrassed of that situation happening. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of times you, you need to find a gym that isn't going to kick you out if something like that does happen, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which it's, it, that's just completely crazy to me to hear that that, that actually happened. Um, obviously those people need to be a little bit more educated. Um, but, you know, I, I do really appreciate that there are so many very popular female lifters that are having these conversations on their public platforms to, you know, make it more commonplace and socially acceptable for your, your body to do what it's gonna naturally do. And it's nothing that can be prevented. Yeah, a part of my research was to do a survey, um, and I want to say there was there was over 150, between 100, 100 and 150 females that participated, and I had some, you know, just standard A, B, C, D, and then some text box questions, and one of them was, you know, do you have a personal experience that you would like to share about, you know, your urination or incontinence? And I was crying one page in to reading these responses yeah. of some of the, the social stigma or things that have happened to these women or women saying, I just don't go over 225 
And it just like hurt my heart to say, you're not participating in something that you love because of what someone else is going to say or think. Mm-hmm. And not saying that that is an inherent problem with these women. It's an inherent problem with the system. Right. And what, what I have found, if you go to a gym that has a power lifting area or power lifters, you are going to be in a much better spot than being in a commercial facility that just oh, for sure. doesn't have those type of instances where it's frequent enough where people even understand yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not a, I, I feel very blessed that it's not a situation that I personally have to deal with, but there have been instances where like, you know, I'm going for a PR and like, eh, it probably happened. But there was one time where I felt like it was going to, and I put that bar down and I did not finish the lift. I was so mad at myself. Yeah. Well, what the, yeah, when it happens and you're not used to it happening, it takes you by surprise. And also some people, again, back to wearing the adult diapers, um, I haven't experienced doing that, but if it was going to fuck up my mechanics or my, you know, mental when I'm mm-hmm. going to a bar because I'm wearing that, I wouldn't wear it, yeah. you know, and I'm sure that's why a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it, it's just so variable. And then I will say, you know, up to 12 to even 24 weeks for some we women postpartum, the, I mean, the incidence of the increase in stress incontinence is going to go way, way, way. Oh, of course. Yeah. So don't take those numbers that I was saying of 50% of your max, whatever, as true if you are within that realm of being postpartum. Um, so many women after having a child will go seek pelvic floor physical therapy just to kind of re-educate and get a little bit of knowledge of what they can do for themselves. But it's it's definitely not necessary, but it is a tool that people can seek out. Absolutely. And um, I will put you all of your contact information in the notes of this podcast. So if anyone has any specific questions, they can reach out to you. Cool. Um, so with within the the strength sports, I mean it's it can be a very uh, injury prone activity, right? Whether it's powerlifting, strongman, even bodybuilding, whatever. Um, what are some very common things that you have seen either within your own gym or just patients that you've worked on? Like, what are some common injuries that you see from um, like situations that have happened in the weight room? The number one thing that I see in treat is low back pain. Mm-hmm. And it is not related to like degenerative disc disease or herniation. It is a unhappy triad of, um, it's a clinical diagnostic pattern that I've looked. And what that means is I could see 10 people that present with one symptom. And then there's a pattern of how that developed. And it is typically related to tight hip flexors. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never met anyone with weak hip flexors ever, like even eight, some 80 year old people barely, uh, but um, them being tight mm-hmm. and you really can't stretch something that that is that deep away. So um, I've learned how to do a manual release of the iliacus and the psoas, which are those two hip flexor muscles. Uh, what happens when they're tight is it kind of gives you what I call the Beyonce booty. It extends your lumbar spine even more than it already is because it's naturally in a little bit of extension. Right. And when you're pulled that hard in extension, what happens is the opposing muscles on your back also get very tight and then they don't like to be stretched. They stretch when you go into the, the bottom of a squat, when you're getting down into a deadlift, when you're going to an arch and a bench, you're pushing those structures that are really close, even closer. Well, what happens is I don't know if you've ever met someone who has thrown their back out. Everyone knows a back guy, I call it. Um, It may have happened to you or someone you know, and usually they're out for like three days, three weeks. They are just like, can't do anything. Um, 
So what that is, is a, a quick flexion response usually occurs. It's typically not weightlifting related. It's like, oh, I'm going to go pick up my dog poop or I'm going to go tie my shoe. Mm-hmm. And your body is not prepared for that quick flexion. And when it perceives it, your body perceives a threat that your spine is going to sever. It's like, what is going on here? So everything goes into spasm to try and protect your spinal cord. The first time it happens is usually the worst. And Mm -hmm. then subsequent times it usually decreases in its duration and intensity, but it is still very uncomfortable. I have met people who have had this issue for 30 years. I have met people who've had it for three weeks and sometimes it's anatomical. And what I mean by that is sometimes you have something going on within your body that creates that issue more than just being tight. Right. For example, someone who has flat feet that really kind of aids and uh, enhances that issue. Someone who has a leg length issue where one leg happens to be longer than the other that enhances and increases that issue as well. So that would be something else secondary that I would look at, but that's actually the primary issue. So with that is just education, um, teaching people to learn deep core strengthening. I don't mean abdominals. I mean the muscles that surround your spine, as well as releasing and maintaining the hip flexor looseness that we've created within our sessions. Um, The second thing that I see is shoulder injuries. I myself just had surgery two weeks ago um, and I'm doing amazing. Look at you. I know I, it was just a cleanup. They didn't end up repairing anything, even though I had some tears, but, um, your shoulder is the most mobile joint in your body. So it is very, very susceptible to injury. Um, strong man is number one. Um, I'm sure with, As, especially since the shoulder, it, it is the you know most mobile joint, but it's not weight bearing either. Yes. And Which then creates a whole nother issue. Yes. So a lot of unilateral overhead activities can create a lot of imbalance and injury. Um, Typically, I also do diagnostic ultrasound, which ultrasound gives a view into muscles and tendons, almost like an MRI. Um, Not as, you know, clear or clinical, but it's a general screening tool that I can see the muscles of the rotator cuff, the bursa within the shoulder, kind of just to see general issues, the bicep tendon, um, you know, repetitive use injuries, like a lot of people get bicep tendonitis from benching. So it's a lot of imbalance work. Um, People who have imbalances, typically it's a lot of times in the shoulder, in the chest, And, you know, working those out, you know, are you left-handed? Are you right-handed? Things like that. Um, And then I would see third is neck and knee are kind of tied. Um, But I would say for the most part, those aren't weightlifting related. It's more uh, life and occupation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then every once in a while, I get an ankle and foot injury. But back and shoulders are the number one things that I see related to weightlifting uh, in general. I absolutely believe that. I was just having a conversation with um, another power lifter and we were talking about treating all weight the same, right? So regardless, if you are moving an empty bar or you're moving your max attempt, the way that you treat that weight should be exactly the same. And I feel like when I hear of people getting hurt, like it, it's not even a cool story. It's like, oh, I had 60% on the bar and, you know, X, Y, and Z happen. And a lot of times from my experience, like it's because people are not treating that 60% with the same care and respect that they're treating 100, 105%. I a hundred percent agree. I always say practice as your platform, whether it's your warm up or your max, it is the exact same, Mm -hmm. the exact same. Yeah, absolutely. I I subscribe to that. Well, good. Glad, glad we're on the same page. Um, I figured you would. Um, and you know, we, we talk about, you know, the functional movements, right. And, and doing things the proper way, but then we actually take that 
take those concepts out into life and we forget all about them, right? Like when we, you know, you were saying like, oh, if someone blew their back out, you know, bending over to pick up their dog's poop or whatever, like you probably weren't hinging properly, <laughs> you know, and using the same mechanics that you would apply to, you know, in the gym. And that's when a lot of those issues tend to happen. Yeah. Um, that's, it's funny that, uh, that just literally just had that conversation with somebody else. Um, so when it comes to like things that you can do to like prevent those things, um, what were, what would be like the top three to help to prevent some of those low back injuries or some of the shoulder injuries that you see a lot when it comes to weightlifting? So we're a front facing upper body society. If you walk into any gym, you typically see a two to one or a three to one ratio of upper and front machines mm -hmm. versus right. lower and posterior machines here at South Bay. It's the opposite ratio, but, um, I would say, uh, focusing on the not normative, which would be posterior chain. And I know a lot of power lifters and weightlifters do focus on that because that's where most of your strength and power comes from. Right. Um, so focusing on your posterior chain, making sure your glutes are absolutely rock solid. Um, and I mean, finite small movements that people usually don't like doing because mm -hmm. you have those little teeny small muscles and then you have your large stabilizers. People always want to work the large stabilizers, you know, those slow twitch muscles, but sometimes getting those fast twitch muscles in there is also going to help you. Um, for your back pain specifically, um, there's two tools that I rotate and alternate and suggest. One is the SoRite. PSO-RITE. Um, I just became a wholesaler with them because I, I made a video and they were so impressed with my explanation. And I was like, you should have me do all of your videos. Um, and apparently they did. <laughs> so it's a tool that almost looks like two hands going like this. Um, and it goes into your um, into your pelvis and you can release your psoas and your iliacus both by using that tool. Um, it's uncomfortable. So people who cannot put themselves in any amount of discomfort or pain, I would not suggest this. I would suggest going to a practitioner, but um, a cell, as a self-release and maintenance tool it is amazing. Um, a higher level product than the psoas is something called the hip hook. It looks very gnarly. It looks like a almost like a fishing hook yep. and you put that into your iliacus and it has a partner, which is a ball that goes into your psoas. Those were developed by a physical therapist. The price point on that set is almost $200. Whereas the price point on Amazon for the so rate is 79. So there's a big difference there in aggression and in price. So I would recommend that. Um, and then third, I would say is posterior activation of the shoulder. So a lot of people, again, are imbalanced with pec tightness, you mm -hmm. know, anterior delts. And to activate, you only have one posterior rotator of your rotator cuff that just truly does pure isolation there. Um, you know, engaging those muscles, there's a physio, because he is overseas, they call physios there. Um, his name is Andrew Locke. Yes. Um, I've had been following him for years. He is amazing. I love his voice. I wish he could touch, uh, record a bedtime story for me. Um, he has put out the shoulder big three, which is a series of posterior shoulder activation that is very simple and easy to do. It is pinned on his page as one of the top three um, things that he does. He also added a fourth one, but um, just doing those simple activation drills to get your shoulder prepared for dynamic movement, I believe is going to set you up for success in upper. Absolutely. And those are the, the preparation for the lifts 
right? And all of the mobility work and the activation work, those are things that a lot of people tend to skip over because they just want to go to the heavy lifting because that's the fun stuff. However, that's where a lot of the issues do come from is not training or preparing those smaller muscle groups that you really need to have ready to go before you start doing a lot of the bigger compounds. I would say I see it both ways. I see that, which I am guilty of that. And I am like minimal warm up. Let's just go. And the older I get, oh, 100%. More... So am I, I'm not going to lie. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> most of the time I practice what I preach. <laughs> the, the 45 minutes still doing the foam rolling. Yes. Hitting a Theragun and every single tissue of their body kind of person. Right. And, and then I'm like, listen, is this necessary or is this a part of your ritual? Yeah. And, you know, really kind of drum out, well, what is the purpose for this? If you can't describe the specific purpose for what you're doing for your warm up, just like it feels good. I mean, yeah, fine. If you got all the time in your own, waste it. But if not, I think that it should be something that is designated for a purpose to help you advance your lifting. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, same thing for like going into the accessory work after some of the big lifts, um, you know, talking about. The, the weaknesses in the body, right? Because no one is perfectly balanced from right to left, front to back, et cetera, right? We always have some type of weakness. And when it comes to training and things that we just kind of want to forego, a lot of times accessories are going to be it, right? Accessories and mobility. Those are things that most people don't want to, don't have time to do or don't want to do. Um, but those are the things that are really going to target those weak points in your compound lift um, and really help you push the needle and start, you know, getting those kilos up on the bar. Yeah, someone once uh, made this statement, I don't remember who, and it like it's always stuck with me forever for powerlifting focus is train your main movements like a powerlifter mm-hmm. and train your accessories like a bodybuilder. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And, you know, that is going to be a path to greatness. And it's true. I completely believe that as well. Um, that's how I train. That's how I train the majority of my clients as well. Um, kind of power building, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of the fusion between the two. Absolutely. Um, so kind of transitioning over into your experience as a meat director, um, what got you into directing meats? So when we, we never had a meet at our old facility, cause it was like, it was a hallway. It was 20 feet long by 120 feet wide. Oh my gosh. It, and that, a hallway. <laughs> it was a hallway and that's stud to stud, not including the drive all over it. So we had several mock meets, several deadlift parties, but I knew we were not set up to appropriately host a meet. As an athlete, for me, my standard of meets, I think as a little, as an elite athlete, is a little bit elitist, we should say, um, in that I've seen super shitty meets, I've mm-hmm. seen super well-organized meets, maybe not in the best space, and then I've seen a combination of both, mm-hmm. and then I've even seen over-the-top meets that is like, wow, this is incredible, and I'm so lucky to be here, and I want any lifter that comes to my gym to have that experience. Cause our gym is already, wow. When you walk in, it is oh, visually sure. stimulating. Yes. With it all is, that artwork on the wall. Yeah. It. It's, it's a little bit overwhelming in many ways. And so we do everything over the top. So we had two meets here when we first opened uh, six months apart and I was not the meet director, but I, when you have a, when you're the host facility, you basically do 80% of the work that a meet director would, but yeah. then, you know, the meet director gets the money they get, um, you know, but also you're not on the line for 
the reputation of the brand or the federation that you're putting the, the meat on for as much as the person who's actually directing the meat. Um, granted, if someone has a bad experience, they're going to, you know, annotate that. Associate. Yeah. yeah. But um, I saw how much money was to be made. I saw that, well, it was, it's not about the money. Sorry, let me back up. I knew though that I was kind of just giving someone else the money for doing something that I was already basically right. doing. Right. I was putting up prize money. I was getting sponsors. All that stuff is something a meat director should be doing. And with the federation that I chose to host meets here originally, they're kind of more just like in the groove of just running meets to run meets as opposed to putting on an entertainment package for a lifter. Mm -hmm. So that was what I wanted. So I chose to be a meat director with the WRPF. I feel like they are a smaller federation that needs to grow and I want to help grow it. They're a little bit more lifter focused Mm -hmm. than other federations in the sense that they give back more to the lifters. Um, There's a lot more money that is being distributed in the the positive direction instead of the negative direction. And I feel like they give a little bit more creative freedom and liberties to their meat directors than other federations do. Um, We swear we have cuss words on the walls, uh, you know, so it's like those are things that I wanted to fit what fit best with our brand and my morals. So I've had two meets as a meat director. One was a regular meet or boobash. And then six weeks later, we had a pro meet the PPC. But I mean, if anyone is capable of doing it, it is me. I, I, I thrive with having pressure put on me. So the PPC was super stressful. Doing pro meets is super stressful. It is on another level as far as, you know, catering to the athletes, the mm-hmm. performance that you're putting on and, you know, the venue that you need to have. But having someone do the meets first so that I can get a picture of, oh, these, this is what I need. Yes. This is, you know, so I was, you know, taking notes the whole time. And at this point, I know I don't have many years left as an elite athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking 2023 might be my last year at, at the pro level. And then we want to start a family and I want to focus more on that than my own shit. Who knows though? But, um, I want to give back to the community because I feel like I have so many resources as far as my education, as far as our facility and, you know, what we can give to the lifting community. So that is why I really chose to be a meat director. And so many people, even the pros came up to me and they were like, this was better than XYZ pro meet. This is the best meet I've ever done. And, you know, people are like, you're setting the standard. And I'm like, this is how all meets should be. Exactly. there should be adequate warm-up equipment. There should be adequate facilities for restrooms and, you know, for warming up and chalk and, you know, bars and all of that. And I'm putting my hat in the ring within the WRPF. I'm currently the records chair and I'm going to hopefully be the national medal distributor. I'm looking to be on the new rule book committee and I'm doing other things within the organization to help elevate the brand to a different standard, but also still be a brand that is for the lifters, not for money in your pocket. Absolutely. And, you know, I think with, with powerlifting, I think over the last couple of years, I think the sport as a whole has come a very long way, but I still think there's a ton of opportunity, right? Because there is such a big gap between the really good meat directors like yourself and the ones that are not so good. (laughs) Um, And, you know, unfortunately, like the ones that are not so good are, you know, lowering the bar, we'll say, um, and kind of putting that, the stigma that powerlifting has, you know, as far as like, you know, unprofessionalism or, you know, unorganized meets, all all those types of things, you know, putting that stigma on the sport when in reality, it's not like that. Um, they're just making it 
a, a lot louder than they should, um, in my opinion. Um, I, I think it was two weekends ago. I won't say which uh, federation it was or where it was, but it was probably one of the worst meets I've ever been to in my life. Um, I had a client competing in this meet and they did not have an MC. The music, I don't know what platform that they were using, but they didn't pay for it because they were um, commercials every five minutes. Um, I did not know where my, I had two clients in this meet. I didn't know where my clients were because there was no one making announcements. Like I didn't even, we didn't even realize that they had started. The gym was still open to the members and I, I had that. to kick someone off a squat rack to warm my clients up. I hate that. They didn't have kilo plates. They didn't even do equipment checks. And I'm like, what the heck are we doing here? Yeah. Is this a mock meet? Is this just for fun? Like, Yeah. And I'm like, and I was surprised given the organization that it was or the federation that it was. But I, I told both of my, I'm like, we're not doing this again. Like, this is the one and only time we are going to be doing a meet with this person. But it was just chaos. Nobody knew what was going on. There was no standards, um, no nothing. It was just, it was insane. But I'm yeah. like, this, this is what gives a sport a bad name, you know, and this is what's holding the sport back from getting to the level that it really should be at. Yeah, it's never going to be perfect, but I always tell people, speak with your dollars. Mm-hmm. Like, don't just join a Fed because it's the most popular federation in your area. Yes, access to meets is a huge deal. Um, I've had clients that have been in like Washington State and they have two options a year in their mm-hmm. state. Yeah. Whereas here in Southern California, there's two options a weekend, Yep. you know, for you to compete. It is an insane different market. And, but speak with your dollars, you know, choose your federation, talk to your meet director before you sign up and ask them questions. What kind of bars are you using? What kind of facility do you have? What's your warm-up area like? And if they can't answer those questions off the top of their head, they don't have their shit together. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, a lot, especially new power lifters, right. They don't even know how many different bar variations there are. Right. Right. And if you're training on a straight bar and then you go to the meet and you have a deadlift bar, like that is, those are two very different things, Yeah, you know, and they feel completely different. Um, You know, so it it is really important to be able to recreate the circumstances that you're going to be under at your meet throughout your training. And, you know, unfortunately, if meet directors can't provide that information ahead of time, then it makes it really difficult on the athlete. But again, like going back to what you said about, you know, things being expensive, and this is not an inexpensive sport to be in by any means, right? And being affiliated with a gym that has all of those different bar options, right? You're going to have to pay a premium for that, um, you know, versus just going to, you know, your crunch or whatever. Yeah. I always tell people if you train in a commercial gym, that's fine. Just Mm -hmm. find maybe the gym that is hosting your competition, if it's local or a powerlifting gym in the area, buy a day pass and do an SBD day there. Yeah. So you can feel it at least once if you never have. Yep. Absolutely. Um, So for 2023, potentially your last competitive year. Potentially. Yes. Potentially. Um, We'll put a big asterisk there. Um, What do you have planned as far as meets go for uh, 2023? Well, I got um, the word is leaving my brain, but I competed in strongman last year and I got the invitation to do the Arnold, which I was so stoked about. Yeah. After doing two strongman competitions, I got that accolade and I was so stoked, but then my shoulder was just really going downhill. And so I'm going to forego that competition. Unfortunately, Um, right now, the only meet that I am signed up for is the WRPF American pro in October. Um, Barring my rehab goes well. Um, if you don't know, 
guys and gals, I am a big bencher. Um, <laughs> yes, you I, are. <laughs> I hold the third best bench as a 165 in the world at 336 pounds. Um, my shoulder really starts to hurt about 225, 250. So until I'm repping in that range, I won't really know if my surgery was successful or not, yeah. unfortunately. Yes. So it's kind of going to be a wait and see game. Um, the other thing is my, I said, my husband was a pro bodybuilder. He's a pro bodybuilder lifestyle. He's getting his pro card, hopefully in June. He's gone for it once um, and was very close. He's won every show he's ever done except for that. Um, mm -hmm. So in June, he's going for his pro card. If he doesn't get it, he's going to keep competing. So our goal is both kind of to like end together. Yeah. Um, so quasi this year, next year, I would like to do like two more competitions. Okay. I, I want to go for the world record bench one more time. Um, if my shoulder surgery is not successful, I am going to do a bodybuilding show. Um, and just, awesome. uh, and on that note, um, so that's kind of what it looks like, but the older I get, the harder this is to keep doing every day at this level. Absolutely. And I'm not the kind of person like my, um, my ego is too big or whatever. I'm not going to go. And like this last competition that I did, um, was absolutely not my best, uh, because I was in so much pain. I opened my bench about 50 pounds lower than my opener in my previous meet. And I don't, for me, loving the bench press as much as I do, I'm, I'm not going to compete just for the sake of competing. I want right. to be really great at it. And I also don't want to like have a unhappy time training because you guys know if you have an injury and you're trying to keep pushing through it, it, it's just not a fun time. So I would then transition into a different sport just for a little bit. Gotcha. Well, fingers crossed that the shoulder surgery works out well. My yes. fingers are crossed over here for you yes. too. Well, the, the American pro two is going to be absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. both Anna and Micah just like took that to the next level, um, yeah. which I'm sure is the meat that you were referring to when you used those words earlier. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's going to be really exciting. Um, I think I'm commentating that meat. Um, cool. so I'm going to, I will definitely be there either way. Um, but I'm very excited about that one too. Cool. Well, um, Ashley, before we part, um, I always like to ask everyone um, if there is one piece of advice that you can give to either someone who is just starting their powerlifting journey or trying to work their way up to that elite level, um, what would be like the one biggest piece of advice you would give them? I will have two different pieces. Um, one, if you're just starting, do not, please do not go on Amazon and just buy the cheapest shit you can find because you're going to end up, that's what everybody does. Yep. And then they end up rebuying it all. Yep. It just gets more expensive if you go the cheap route. <laughs> yes. You're going to buy twice, three times. So find someone that is experienced, meaning two plus more years as a competitive power lifter, meaning they actually compete and ask them some brand recommendations, ask two or three people, some brand recommendations and don't buy squat shoes until you know that you need them. Yes. Um, the second piece of someone who's trying to transition into a more elite level is level up your coaching. Um, if you're using template training or, you know, just the guy in the gym is giving you programming or something like that, find an established coach who has a record of success. And I don't mean they all have elite level athletes. I mean, they have taken people onto a successful journey of growth and Possibly if you can get with someone who has expertise to do one-on-ones with you, whether it's a coach, a physical therapist, something I do one-on-one -on -one coaching in clinics. Um, I know that other areas do seminars and things like that. Find that and help get some higher level technique so that you can elevate your strength to that level too. Absolutely. 
That's awesome advice. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for your time today. Um, again, I'm going to put all of Ashley's contact information in the notes of this podcast. So feel free to reach out to her with any questions. Um, and then I'm also going to grab the links for those two recommendations for um, the hip flexors as well. Yes. And I'm going to throw those in the notes that way people can purchase those if they want to. But thank you so much, Ashley. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it too. Yeah.